We're looking at Ephesians chapter 2. We're doing the second half of the chapter today. So this will be 11 through 22. Last week, we ended with the statement that even though we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, our works don't save us at all. Once we are saved, we are called to lives of good works. We're, in fact, according to verse 10, created for good works. Now, with a statement like that, we might hope that Paul would then go on and explain to us what these good works, what this life of good works looks like, but we would be disappointed. But remember, Ephesians is divided into two halves. The first half is the theological argument. It's the the ideas that we need to know, the things that we need to believe. And the second half, four through six, is really the practical outworking of that. So even though he he almost gets into that practical thing by saying, hey, we we are created for good works, he then backs into the, the theological argument again, telling us more of what we need to know and what we need to believe. So eventually we will get to that very practical second half that tells us about those good works. But for right now, starting in verse 11... We're going to go back into the what do we need to know, what do we need to believe section. So if you have a Bible, please open it to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And if you're looking in the Pew Bible, you're going to find it on page 976. This is verse 11 here. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And what is he talking about there? Well, when we come across the word therefore in the Bible, we always need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And it's there to point us back to what happened in the first half of chapter 2, which is the argument that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because of that, therefore, what? We are to remember, according to these verses. And what are we to remember? We are to remember that we were without hope. Oh, that's kind of a serious thing. The end of verse verse 12 tells us that we had no hope and that we were without God in the world. Do you believe that those two things go together? That if you are without God, if you have not been brought into relationship with God through his son, that you are hopeless. I don't mean in the little things. You can hope that you'll win the game or hope that you get the promotion, those kind of things. But as far as eternal hope, do you believe that without a reconciled relationship with the Father through the Son, that you are without hope? That is the thing that he's talking about here. If you don't have God, you don't have hope. Any of you see the new Top Gun movie? Raise your hand. Any of you? Nobody? Okay, a little bit of a spoiler here. We saw it a few weeks ago. It was really good. Near the end of the movie, in the main mission, Maverick is shot down, and he ejects, and he lands in the snow in enemy territory. He's running for his life as a helicopter is hunting him down. He's jumping behind logs, trying to hide from bullets, all that stuff, but eventually the inevitable happens. And he stands in the snow, no protection, helicopter sights on him. He knows it's over. He is 
without hope. There is nothing he can do to save himself. But of course, because it's a movie, at the last moment, a missile comes streaking in from the side, blows up the helicopter, and he realizes that his rival, the cocky young guy named Rooster in the movie, has come back and has saved his life. Now, that's not the end. There's still a lot more that happens after that. But in that particular moment, the character that Tom Cruise plays, went in, in one moment, he went from absolutely no hope to suddenly there is hope. That's how it was for us, too. We were stranded in the snow, separated from God, alienated from God, is what Paul says here, hopeless without God in the world. But then a rescuer came in, Jesus. And without us doing anything to save ourselves, just standing there in the snow, Jesus came in and defeated our enemy to rescue us. Now you've got to go watch the movie. Watch it before it gets out of the theaters, because it's a good movie to see in the, in the theater. Why exactly were we hopeless? According to Paul here, we were hopeless because we were Gentiles. Most of the population around here is Gentiles. It's non-Jewish. And so we can identify with the Ephesian people that Paul is talking to here. We can understand that Paul is saying to them, you were not, we were not, the chosen people of Israel. We were alienated. We were separated. We didn't know about the one true God. We were referred to as the uncircumcision by those who are the circumcision. That is, the Jewish people marked out by God as his own special people by that physical mark of circumcision. We were not part of them. We were cut off, separated from Christ, to use Paul's words, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise. That's the real key there. God had revealed truths to the Jewish people that he did not reveal to the rest of the world. And so if you were growing up in Ephesus at the time, you had really no idea about the one true God. You didn't have the Old Testament. You didn't have the, the traditions that were passed down through the generations of Jewish people. You didn't know about the one true God. You knew about all kinds of false gods. You knew about Artemis, who was the, the primary goddess of Ephesus, false goddess, but you didn't know anything about the one true God. You didn't have much of an opportunity to know. You were lost. You were alienated. You were separated, just like we were. But this is in verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He doesn't mean geographically far off. He means spiritually far off. You've got no chance of connecting with God. You don't know anything about him. You've got nobody to tell you about him. You are hopeless. But now in Christ Jesus, you were once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Notice that we've got that passive voice in there, brought near. It's not that you brought yourself near, but that you were brought near. And what is it that brought you near? It's the blood of Christ. The sacrificial death of Jesus not only brought salvation to the Jewish people, but to the Gentile people too. And I am so thankful for that. Without it, 
I would be without hope. Jesus shed his blood as a sacrifice to cover our sins. Those of us who were far from God were brought into the family of God. We were enemies of God. We were then reconciled, made peace with God. But more than that, as we've already seen a couple times in the book of Ephesians, it's not just a vertical reconciliation between us and God. It's a horizontal reconciliation between us and other people. So verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, we'll talk about what that means in a moment, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, meaning the Jew and Gentile, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So Jesus doesn't just reconcile us vertically to the Father, as amazing as that is. He also brings us peace and reconciliation with each other. We can love each other as brothers because we can truly be brothers if we are in the family of God. Now, if you're a person who kind of gets along with everybody, this may not seem like such a big deal to you, but think about the historical reality of what he's writing about. Think about the tension, thousands of years of conflict between the Jewish people and the rest of the world. Think about just the last hundred years where you've got the Nazis and you've got different Muslims, Muslim groups, different countries that have, have decided that their role, their goal in the world is to destroy the Jewish people. The Jewish people have been under attack for as long as they have been the Jewish people. You think about the modern state of Israel, which was established after World War II, and, and almost all of the neighbors of Israel have at different times in the last few decades decided to try to destroy Israel. You think about the, the videos that you've seen of people in, in Iran chanting, chanting death to America. Well, those same people who want to see our country destroyed have it as their primary purpose to see Israel destroyed. The, the reason Iran is trying to develop a nuclear weapon is not really to attack us. It's to destroy Israel. That is their goal. There's some serious hostility between the people of Israel and the rest of the world. Now, there was a little bit of hostility for our family this week. We had a great week down at Scioto Hills Camp for family camp. The Wolbers were there with us. And if you've ever been to Scioto Hills, you know that the word hills in the name is earned. There's really no flat place at Scioto Hills. Well, we have Owen, who just keeps getting heavier, and we have all of his stuff. Sometimes we have to take a lot of that stuff with us. And so we borrowed a side-by-side -side from the Wolvers in order to transport him and his stuff around camp. And because Russell thought, he had the forethought to reset the trip meter before we started, we know that borrowing that side-by-side -side saved us 27 miles of pushing Owen up and down the hills over the course of the week. So I'm very thankful for that, Russell. But even with that, there was still, still some conflict. Specifically, there was conflict between our family and the millipedes. So we've got a picture for you here of this little guy. He looks innocent, friendly little fellow, right? They haven't had a problem with these in the past. But maybe they're like locusts and they all come out every few decades at the same time. 
But the, the facility that our family was staying in, it was an all-out invasion of the Milites. There were thousands of them all over the place. Some of you are shaking your heads like, no, thank you. I'm never going to camp now. Honestly, it was a very rare thing at camp. But the first night that we were there, we've already killed hundreds of them that are crawling around on the floor and, and the walls and everything. The first night we were there, there's some of them crawling out of the light in the ceiling and dropping onto my head in bed. It's not fun. Some of them are mouth shut the whole time. Right? Yeah. Close. But my nostrils and keep my mouth shut, right? Significant conflict for the family staying in that facility against the pesky little millipedes. But that is that's nothing compared to the conflict between the Jewish and Gentile people. That conflict is pictured in a physical reality. Let's look at our, our picture here of the temple complex at the time of Jesus. And there's this outer court that's labeled there as the court of the Gentiles. And then there's this wall that goes around the main inner part. It's called the soreg. And that is, that's probably what Paul has in mind here where he's, we, when he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. Because you, if you were a Gentile, you were not allowed inside of that wall, the Soreg. In fact, in 1871, some archaeologists uncovered what is called the Soreg Warning Stone. It's written in Latin and Greek, the two main Gentile languages of the time. And it says this. This would have been on the, the wall as a warning. No stranger is to enter within the balustrade around the temple and the enclosure. Whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. Right? In other words, if you're a Gentile, you cross this line, you die. Right? When we lived in Michigan years ago, we lived near the General Motor Proving Ground, and it was where they tested the vehicles, had tracks and everything. And uh, for years, there was a huge sign at the entrance to the General Motors Proving Ground that said, if you come in here with a foreign label car, like Honda or Nissan or something, we are not responsible for the damage that is done to it. Because the workers would come out on their shifts and they would destroy any foreign-made cars that were inside the Proving Ground. Same idea, do not come across this line, you are not welcome. But Jesus made an end to that. He broke down that dividing wall between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, bringing them together in him. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. Verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off, meaning the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, meaning the Jewish people. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice all three members of the Trinity are present right there. We've got him, Jesus, the Spirit, and the Father crammed into that one little verse there. But the point is, both the Jewish people and the Gentile people are brought into the family of God in the same way. How is a Jewish person saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That was our main point last week. How is a Gentile person saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's the same way. And so we are no longer two different people on two different historical trajectories. We are one new man, as Paul says, reconciled to each other and reconciled to God in Christ. So we might represent this with a diagram of a cross where we have the vertical 
reconciliation between us and God, making one new man. And we have the horizontal reconciliation between the Jews and the Gentiles, bringing us together. It's important to note that the vertical part of this defines or makes possible the horizontal part. The order is important. This has been true for all of history. Our vertical relationship with God defines, constrains, directs, frames our horizontal relationship with each other. If we think back to the garden, God created Adam, and even before he created Eve, God had a vertical relationship with Adam. He established that first, then he adds the horizontal relationship, setting for us a pattern, really for all human relationships, but especially for marriage, that to have a godly marriage, you need two people who are reconciled in relationship with God vertically, and then you can have the horizontal marriage that God has designed marriage to be. We think about later in the history of Israel, they've already become the nation of Israel. They have been established vertically in relationship with God. And then through Moses, God adds the law. And part of the reason for the law is to actually separate the Jewish people from the rest of the world. It defines a horizontal relationship of separation that eventually, as we saw in the earlier verses, Jesus will overcome. But the vertical relationship between Israel and God was first and is the basis for the law, which defines the horizontal relationship with others. Let's go back to Jesus. We are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other. The vertical relationship made possible through Jesus defines the horizontal relationship also made possible through Jesus. Peace with God is possible only because of Jesus and true peace with each other is only possible through Jesus. Verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So we were once strangers. We were once aliens, not like space aliens. Now you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. There is a fundamental difference between a citizen and an alien, an insider or an outsider. The country is a little confused about that in certain areas right now. But there's a difference between someone who has been made a citizen and someone who is not yet a citizen, or somebody who is in the family and somebody who is outside the family. And Paul is saying, look, you, he's talking to all of us, you were outside the family. You were an alien to the kingdom of God. But now, you're inside the family. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God. Now, he's going to switch his metaphors here. He's going to start talking about the church as a building. Not this building, but us, the people of the church, metaphorically as a building. Anybody, ever, anybody in here ever build a house Build your own house? Okay. Wayne. Orville's. They're working on their third house right now. Wayne tells me it's the last one they ever built, so you guys got to hold them to that, right? Yeah? (laughs) Wentz, shake your head yes. When I was a freshman in high school, our family built a new house, and in order to save money, we did a lot of the work ourselves. And so I learned a lot 
over the course of that year. It was also the same year that I went on my first mission trip with our church. As a freshman in high school, actually it would be the summer after my freshman year, I got into an old school bus, now a church bus, with a whole bunch of other high school students, and we traveled to Lone Rock, Wisconsin, where we would help build a Habitat for Humanity house for the week. We had grand visions of raising walls, setting trusses, all kinds of really cool construction stuff. That's not exactly how it planned out, panned out. When we got there, we discovered that the family uh, the house was being built for had made a change of plans. Originally, they were going to have what was basically a tall crawl space, a few feet deep um, where you could kind of crouch over and, and be inside of it. And so they had dug out the, the hole and they had made the forms and they had poured the foundation and it was going to stick up above the ground level a little bit, but it was just a short wall foundation. And then after that, they decided they would really like a full height basement instead. Well, the foundation's already there. Habitat for Humanity amazingly agreed to this, and so our job for the week was to take all the dirt from inside the newly poured walls and move it outside the walls. Of course, we did this manually, shovels and wheelbarrows, right? But we threw ourselves into it. We were excited. We're going to get the work done. We wanted to get the whole thing done in the week. Well, as the week drags on, a couple things happen. One, those of us strapping young lads who are doing the wheelbarrowing, we're getting a little tired of this. We're getting a little bored. Wait for it to fill up, take it out, dump it out, bring it back. Fill it up, take it out, dump it out, bring it back. Getting a little bored. But another thing's happening. The ramp that goes up the wall and down the other side of the wall is getting steeper on one side as the dirt goes down, right? So in our boredom and in our cockiness, we're pushing the wheelbarrows faster. We're trying to get a little bit of air as we go over the crest of the ramp, right? And then it's a little more air. And then before long, we're really launching off. You know, feet are flying behind us, and I'm just amazed that nobody was impaled by a wheelbarrow handle. I'm also amazed that our leaders let us do this. But for the rest of the week, it got steeper, we flew higher, some dirt spilled, but we cleaned it up, We named ourselves the first Airborne Flying Wheelbarrow Division, and we had a a great time. Nobody was seriously hurt, amazingly. If you've built a house, you know that you have to get the foundation right. Even if you change your mind and want a different kind of foundation, you have to get the foundation right right or the whole thing becomes a mess. If you've ever lived in a house that had foundation problems, especially if like sagging or something, you know that it can really make a mess of the foundation, I'm sorry, a mess of the whole house. If the church is like a house, we should ask, what is the foundation of the church? And we might quickly say, well, Jesus, of course, but that is not what Paul is going to say. Verse 20, talking about the church, the whole universal church, as a building built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and what what in the world does this mean? Well, the apostles were those first leaders of the church, originally 12, then a few more added, like Paul, and they knew Jesus personally. 
They spent time being instructed by Jesus personally. They were used by the Holy Spirit to be the foundation, to be the the beginning of the Christian church. They were the ones who knew what Jesus had said, knew what Jesus did, knew what Jesus commanded, and they were given the task of leading the early Christian church. They would be used by God to grow the church from just a few dozen people to thousands upon thousands spread out all over the Mediterranean region in just a few short years. The prophets don't think of prophet like a a foretelling, like um, this thing's going to happen in this many years and this is the sign that it's going to happen. In this case, what he's talking about is really the idea of forth-telling or telling forth the word of God. And in the case of what he's talking about here, the apostles and the prophets, really they overlap in the same people. The apostles and the prophets are the same. God used the apostles to both build the church and to deliver, to tell forth the word of God. Specifically, he used them to write the New Testament for us. So we think about Paul writing all those letters. Matthew, who was a a tax collector turned disciple of Jesus, named an apostle and then writes the book of Matthew. Or John writing the book of John and even the book of Revelation. At the end, these guys, the, the apostles, are also the authors of the New Testament. They were regular dudes. Nothing special about them. But God chose them, God saved them, God called them, and God filled them with the Spirit in order to do an amazing work. We are regular folks. But what does God have for us to do? We don't know. But if he's calling us to do something for his kingdom, it's not because we're particularly special or impressive. It's because, just like the apostles, God called us, or, sorry, uh, yeah, God has chosen us, God has saved us, God has called us, and he's filled us with the Spirit to do a particular work. That foundation, what we'll see in just a minute, the words of the apostles and the prophets, the New Testament foundation, the teaching of the apostles, is the foundation for the church. But we're also told in the same verse that there's a cornerstone. Jesus is that cornerstone. Now, we tend to use the word cornerstone in the wrong way today. Like, we have a cornerstone out the upper southwest doors here. looks just like this. And it says, First Christian Church, which was our name 100 years ago when this building was built. And then it's got dates for the three previous buildings and the current ones. 1821, 1858, 1883, is that what it says? And 19. 19- 21, which is when this particular building was built. And this cornerstone serves no real structural role. It's really more of a memorial. It's also a time capsule. You can break it open, there's some stuff, historical stuff hidden inside of there. That's not how cornerstone as a word was used for most of history, and it's not how Paul's using it here. The next picture is really how Paul is using it here. If you're going to build a building, especially if you're going to make it out of stones, you start with a cornerstone. You get your best, squarest, flattest, solidest stone, 
and you put it exactly where you want it, perfectly level, lined up in exactly the right way. If you want your building facing due north, you've got to make sure that one side of that cornerstone is facing due north. You, you'd spend an incredible amount of time and effort getting that cornerstone right because then the walls are built off of that. That is the guide for the rest of the building. If you get this wrong, your building is wrong. If it's not level, your building's not level. If it's not oriented to north, your building's not oriented to north. Paul is saying Jesus is that cornerstone. It starts with him. And he's perfectly level, and he's oriented the right way, and the church then is built off of that cornerstone. If we don't have Jesus as our cornerstone, not only do we get a, a church, again, talking about the people, that is not straight, lined up, or level, or strong, or sturdy, or safe to be in. If we don't have Jesus as that cornerstone, we've got something else as that cornerstone, we don't even have a church. We've just got something else. We've got an imposter. Our cornerstone our rule, our thing that guides the rest of the building of the church must be Jesus. All right, last two verses. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we are the rest of the building that is the church. We're not the foundation, that's the apostles and prophets. We're not the cornerstone, that's Jesus. We're the rest of the building. So you might be a two by four, that would make you a stud, right? You might be a, a 90 degree plumbing elbow. You might be uh, a wire nut. You might be a shingle or a piece of siding, but you are part of the church, the building that Jesus is building says that there's even a specific purpose for this, right? So we are joined together. We grow into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now there is a sense in the New Testament that each of us individually, if we are saved by Jesus, we are a temple to the Holy Spirit because the Spirit lives inside of us. But this is talking about a different reality. This is talking in the plural. It's, just, it's saying, you all, y'all are the temple of God. Y'all are being built into a temple, a holy house that God will dwell in. This particular building here, this is not what we're talking about. This building doesn't really matter. Now, it's a great tool, and we should be a good steward of it, but we as the people are the actual church. We are the thing that is being built up as the dwelling place, the temple, the holy place of God. And that's happening together. It says we're joined together. We're built together. We're somehow united together in Christ. All right, two final points. If you are a two-by-four, what role do you play in the raising of a wall? 
or no role, right? It's the builder that assembles and raises the wall. Two by four does nothing on its own. It is the same way with this. Look at these words again. Verse 21. In whom the whole structure being joined together, not joining itself together, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built, not building yourself, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in the way that the Holy Spirit's inspiring Paul to write this specifically, the language, the grammar is giving us an important clue. Just like we saw in Ephesians 1. This is the work of God. Yes, we partner with him. Yes, we yield to him. We do what he asks us to do, but he is the builder. That's really the most important question from this passage. Who is the builder? Well, God is the builder. Are there any parts of the New Testament that would support that? Yeah, your mind might be going to that. Really, the best passage for that right now, it's Matthew 16, 13 through 18. It says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Referring to himself. They said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Naming off a whole bunch of people that have been dead for a while. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? And here's the key. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Jesus clearly says that he will build his church. What does the future of our particular congregation look like? I don't know. What's the future of any congregation look like? I don't know. But if we are going to be built up more into the church that Jesus wants us to be, it's because he builds us. And we got all kinds of roles to play, and we got to cooperate and work with him, but he is the master builder. We might say that he's, he's the architect. He's already, as we've seen, the cornerstone. He established the foundation. He does the building work. He's even the supplier of the materials. He's the general contractor. He's even the building inspector. It's all about him. He builds his church. Last point. Notice how these two passages, the Ephesians passage and the Matthew 16 passages link up to each other in a different way. Here in Matthew that we just read, Caleb, would you go back to the last part of the Matthew passage? Here in Matthew, we just read, Jesus says that he will build his church. He says he's going to build it on something. Now we saw before that the foundation is the apostles and prophets. Jesus here says, says to Simon, says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. And what we miss in English would have been completely obvious to the disciples that they heard it the first time. I mentioned this to you before. Jesus is using two different versions of the word rock here. So he says, you are Peter, little rock, pebble, stone. And on this rock, boulder, outcropping, mountain, big rock, I will build my church. 
This is something that historically our friends in the Catholic Church have gotten wrong. They've said Peter is the rock on which the church is built. He's the first pope, and all the popes that theoretically follow after him are that rock. They are the foundation. But grammatically, that doesn't make any sense. Jesus says, you are Peter, little rock, and on this rock, big rock, I will build my church. And so what is the big rock? What is the foundation? It's the confession of Peter. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the beginning of the teachings of the apostles, which Paul told us in Ephesians, is the foundation of the church. Now, the apostles, they would add a lot to that, but that's the start. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's the core truth. The rest of the teaching of the apostles fills out that foundation. It is the foundation that the church is built on. So it's these words, it's these ideas, it's these teachings. The big rock, the foundation, is the teaching of the apostles. How do we know what the teaching of the apostles is? What's recorded for us? We've got the, the four gospel stories, the histories of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We've got all those letters, like the letter to the Ephesians. We've got John's revelation in the end, looking off to the future, where God reveals what's going to happen. All of this is the teachings of the apostles, and it is the foundation on which the church and our church must be built. Anybody trying to build a church on something else is not building a church. Therefore, we can take Peter's first confession that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus' statement about that confession that he'll build his church. We can sync it up to Paul's statement that the foundation is the teaching of the apostles and the prophets. It all comes together perfectly. So we ask, who is the church? We are the church. Whose church are we? Jesus. We individually and corporately, we belong to Jesus. He's building us as a church. Who builds it? Jesus builds us. Yes, we work with him, but he is the master builder. What does he build the church on? The foundation of the apostles, the prophets. What is that foundation? It's the New Testament. It all comes together for us. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? There are lots of ideas out there about how to build a local church. Thousands of books, conferences, heroes that tell you how to do it, all that. Much of what is put out there in order to help pastors and elders and deacons and people in the church build a church is very loosely based on the New Testament. It tends to be, in the last couple decades, it tends to be more based on uh, a humanist approach, a business world approach, uh, even a scientific approach. Do some surveys, figure out what people want, give them what they want. Church grows. Provide a good program, provide a good service. People want, the church grows. When we do that, we are building something that looks kind of like a church, but is not actually a church. 
there's really, there's only one foundation, and it's already laid. It's the foundation of the apostles, the prophets. There's only one cornerstone. It's already there. It's Jesus. There's only one builder. There's only one architect with a plan. Jesus. Our job is not to figure out how to build his church. He is doing that. Our job is to walk in relationship with him, in obedience to him, in submission to him, becoming the people, the parts of the church, and the whole building, the church, that he has called us to be. What that means is, if you're a two-by-four, you need to be strengthened in Christ to be a strong, straight, true two-by-four. If you're a 90-degree elbow under the sink, you need to be strengthened in Christ, build up in, in Christ so that you're not rusty, so that you're not uh, connected incorrectly and, and leaking, but that you're fulfilling the role that God has called you to. When each of the parts of the body fulfill their role, the body is healthy. When each of the parts of the building fulfill their role, the building is strong. And that goes us, gets, us, gets us back to the point that we made earlier. These these guys that we look at as heroes, they were normal dudes. But they were chosen by God. And they were called by God. Saved by God. Filled with the Holy Spirit. Sent out a mission by God. And were used to build the church of God. We need each of you fulfilling the role that God has called you, built you for caused you to be born again for. God will build his church through that. Let's pray.